and welcome to another edition of Cut to the Chase. I'm your host, Francisco Murrow Jr. We have a lot to talk about today. The Team USA game yesterday against the Netherlands. We're going to be talking about the Jets-Giants recap, and we'll talk about the MLB hot stove. So let's talk about the really tough loss that Team USA had yesterday against the Netherlands. Game around to 16. Netherlands coming into this match, winning 19 of their last games. And Team USA, this is the most that they've conceded in a World Cup for a while. Early on, they were very aggressive. Team USA, Christian Pulisic, had a very good opportunity within like the five to six minute mark. And they were very aggressive and they were getting, they really controlled the ball and had more the more possession than the Netherlands. And it just seemed like it was only a matter of time until the USA scored. Unfortunately for them, you know, their defense really let them down. The Netherlands had the ball and they went down the pitch and they found there was a pass to Memphis Depay who hit one in the corner and Matt Turner had no shot at getting it, but it was a lapse of space. You know, they didn't, they didn't cover the middle. And I think it might've been Tyler Adams that didn't go back and stop his man and step in front. And really that, that changed the tide of this game. Later on before the first half, David Blind scores once again, He's in the middle, and they're not closing the gap and creating less space for the defenders. They just were left wide open, and nobody covered him, and he, and he scored. And then it was 2-0 at the half. But the problem was the difference between the Netherlands and the United States. Yeah, the United States had plenty of scoring opportunities, but the Netherlands would collapse on the U.S. strikers and give them little to no space to pass the ball or, or work their way in the middle. And that was really tough for them because then the U.S. had to go and go to the corners. And they had they had, they had a good amount of corners. I think they had two corners or so. And they had seven shots, eight were up. Another one, six. They had more possession. They, you know, to another one's 41%. And Team USA, they had another opportunity. They had, um, I think it was, it might have been right, or it was it was one of the strikers. It was either right or it might have been no. It was Weston McKinney who uh, who kicked one, and it just went a little bit over the crossbar. Um, so they were applying pressure, but it was t- it was they were having a tough time getting the ball deep into the Netherlands zone. And fortunately, the U.S. finally was able to get a goal. Um, it was a nice play by Sergio Dest, who created some space and, and crossed the ball. And it ended up, it was right who ended up Clipped, it clipped his left foot, and it created some sort of backspin. It created backspin, and it went back in the net, which was just an incredible goal. And you could you could sense that USA has an opportunity here. 
and the energy and the momentum shifted towards Team USA. Um, however, it didn't come until until really late, you know, and it ha it it happened at a point in time where and it where it's crucial, you know, they need to they need to they need to score and they need to get going, and unfortunately, you know, then then the Dutch score another goal, and it's by dumb 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 fries. And it was just really frustrating because had the United States tightened up their defense in their zone, they had the chance to beat the Netherlands and advance uh, to the next round. But it's just frustrating. I mean, they're a really young, really young team. Greg Berhalter has a lot of talent to work with. However, they, they do have they do have to work on their defensive mishaps and they need to be able to create more opportunities to get into the striking zone to score. It's frustrating, definitely. You'd like to see them win, but the Netherlands were patient and they were very precise in their game plan. And they have a really, really solid coach in Luis Van Gaal, who the oldest coach in the whole World Cup. So... It's thanks to the United States, but now it's back to the drawing board. You have Christian Pulisic, who, who he's young. He's only 24 years old. You have a lot of young players on the squad. And what also stunk for them, too, though, was they had their striker, Josh Sargent, wasn't able to play yesterday because he had an ankle injury. So hopefully Team USA can fix their defensive mishaps, and hopefully they can – make it to the next World Cup in 2020, 2026, and hopefully they'll make even more noise. But the main thing, too, in this World Cup, they only scored three goals, three goals in the whole tournament. You can't get far if you don't have any scoring depth and you don't, you don't have a high-octane offense. You're not going to be able to compete against teams like Argentina, teams like France, teams like Portugal, teams like the Netherlands, you have to be able to have scoring opportunities and, and playmakers. And so that's something that they're going to have to work on. So let's dive into the Jet game. So early in the game, the Jets didn't get anything going. Had a tough time. Uh, moving the chains and the Jets defense <clears throat> did a good job at containing Kirk Cousins. He was 0 for 5 in the first five passing attempts that he had and it led to lead to the Vikings get getting a field goal because Mike White threw a pick early in the game and it was completely on him. He threw it behind Corey Davis and it hits off Corey Davis and it's intercepted by Harrison Smith. And then the Jets are trying to get the ground game going. They're not getting much going on. And the Vikings are able to incorporate some gadget plays with Justin Jefferson and running the ball well with Dalvin Cook. And Dalvin Cook early on was looking strong. Minnesota was able to bring the ball down the field and they scored a, scored a touchdown with the Dalvin Cook run. And then 
later on, they get a rushing touchdown by Alexander Madison. So it's a blowout at this point, and it's 14 to 3. And Jets fans are thinking, oh, geez, we're going to get the doors blown off, and you just have to play for pride right now. But another part, too, is you have to believe in this team. This team has a really strong defense, and I think they have the right coach in Robert Sala. And, you know, Mike White, he doesn't seem to be bothered by, you know, what mistakes are being made. He goes and and moves on and, and looks to do better, and he went and did that. I mean, the Vikings defense is strong. They have Zadarius Smith. They have Harrison Smith. They have inside linebackers and Eric Kendrick. They have a bunch of playmakers. They have Danielle Hunter, Patrick Peterson, Delvin Tomlinson, who's a, who's a good player. So the Vikings did a great job early on because while the Jets were able to move the field, they couldn't. I mean the Jets beef the Jets offense you had you had except for except for that one touchdown, every other play, every other scoring opportunity was Greg Zerline. Greg Zerline made a sixty yard field goal, but he was also five for five. So he scored sixteen out of the twenty two points. In order to beat a good team like the Vikings, you need to put the ball in the end zone. And the play calling just didn't look so good. And, you know, there were some drops. and But the defense started to pick it up in the second half. At some point in the second half, the Jets only allowed 12 yards, 12 yards for the Minnesota offense, which was outstanding because in the first half, I believe it was the Minnesota Vikings, and they had like about 190 total yards, and the Jets had about – one one forty or so. So they were dominating them early in the game because the running game was working well for Minnesota. The Jets couldn't get the running established. The offensive line wasn't blocking well. They weren't giving Mike White enough time. But in the second half things clipped with uh with Garrett Wilson. I mean Garrett Wilson made it Great, great catch in the middle of the field, dodges off a tackle and then just runs down the field. And then he runs out at the 11 yard line, which was frustrating because if he is able to stay in bounds, he scores a touchdown. That changes the whole momentum and then that gives the Jets the lead at that um, But, you know, and, and, and the other thing too is you have to give credit to the running game later on in the game. Donovan Knight, who was taking the bulk of the carries, he actually had 15 carries for 90 yards. He had a really great run where he ran to the outside and scampered and got a, I think it was a 41-yard run, which really catapulted them to to score that last drive where it ended up resulting in a Mike White quarterback keep, and he just barely broke broke the plane. Now, they had to review it because initially the refs, deemed that it wasn't a touchdown, that he didn't cross cross the goal line, that the Vikings stopped him. And luckily, the Jets were able to challenge. They had one challenge left, and they were able to 
be successful in that as it got overturned. But the Jets' momentum quickly shifted to them. The Vikings couldn't run the ball. The Jets' defense really collapsed on them. But it was tough because Michael Carter left the game in the second half with an ankle injury. And then Quinn and Williams is running to go tackle uh, Delvin Cook. And it looked like as if Dalvin Cook's crown of his helmet connected with Quinn and Williams, and Quinn and Williams was down on the ground. Luckily, he was able to come back, but, you know, a lot of it had to do with drops and not having a good start to the game. That really hurt them because in the second half, they had to come back down by 14 points. And Mike White threw the ball 57 times. Yeah, he completed it 30, 31 times and threw for 369 yards, but he had two picks. You know, it was exciting. They were able to come back, but then Mike White throws that interception at the end of the game and really hurts. You know, Cameron Byram picks him off, and the Jets are in the – I think they're at, like, the 19-yard line or so, but fourth and 10. I mean, the play before that, Mike White has – they have enough time. I mean, yeah, they have no timeouts, but he could easily ran the ball for a six, seven-yard game and ran out of bounds and give yourself a better opportunity to, to have a shorter pass to move the chains and, and keep the game alive. And this game stings, definitely. The Jets fought and didn't give up. But now it's a must-win in Buffalo next week. So, you know, you're hoping for the Jets that Michael Carter can come back, the running back, can come back and play next week because he has a – I believe it's in a high ankle sprain. Zama had an important catch that helped them get that field. So, White's able to distribute the ball to multiple. So, moving forward, it has to be your starter. The defense the during the game. Um, sometimes they do a slow, you know, miss tackles and able to to stop the offense, but. The Jets are in a must-win next weekend. It's a must-win to be able to make the playoffs this year. Things started off strong, so you know they started off not great, but they've come along and they've they've it's their the schedule with this rebound, but it's train you know the great today, but things because you're not able to come the W. Mike White needs to be your starting quarterback forward and I think Nick LaFleur needs to do better with his play calling because sometimes it's a little questionable you know the, the one drive he had and he the ball he got stuck point in time go ahead and throw the ball take your chance second attempt 
and then in the situation, then okay. Sometimes the calling can be a little question. I think this team be back. No, it feels to lose a tough game you know, for that week 11 New England and that they should that they lost. So I think this, well, with them, they'll, and then they'll push forward and look at Buffalo, which is a hot environment. So it's win. But I, but I will say, you no, know, that's really Justin Jefferson early on in the game in check, but then after a while, it's, he gets going, but then they're attacking him. So what they're able to make the, if they can make the playoffs, their sound game, and their defense, which is one of the better defenses in the league, and then the other thing too is Mike show up and makes and you just have to play better. I think that turn the page and, and gotta stick. So for the Giants, the Giants were playing the Washington Commanders who have won three straight. <laughs> they were coming in seven and five, Giants seven and four. And early on in the game Daniel Jones was running the ball well, effectively, but he had a costly turnover as the commanders ended up getting a pitch, getting a uh, getting a short field goal by Joey Sly, and then you know the next time the Vikings, not the Vikings, I'm sorry, the Commanders were were driving um, Taylor Heineke through a through a pass, kind of like a short stop. Through to Terry McLaren, and he should have been tackled, but there was just completely missed him because of the speed that Terry McLaren possesses and scored a touchdown. So early on, Giants were down ten nothing, and and the Giants needed to respond. And Daniel Jones was perfect early on in the game. He was ten for early on. He was ten for ten for seventy one yards, and. The Giants had scored a field goal, and then after that, Saquon Barkley weaved his way into the end zone untouched for a touchdown, and then that tied things up and into the half. It was 13-13. And then when the second half started, Daniel Jones later on in the game found Isaiah Hodgins on a pass, the left left corner of the end zone for a touchdown, took the lead, and it was 28-13. What set them up for that opportunity, I believe, was when Azi Ajalari um, made contact with Taylor Heineke, which caused them to fumble and gave the Giants good field goal field goal position. However, the Commanders had big games from the likes of Terry McLaren and Jahan Dotson and even Curtis Samuel. Terry McLaren had eight catches for 105 yards and a touchdown. Curtis Samuel had six catches, 63 yards. John Dotson had five catches, 54 yards, and a touchdown. And on that drive, he threw the pass to Jahan Dotson. He broke a tackle and then at the literally half a second later, spin move, and then scored a touchdown. And that tied the game up. And Heineke did his job, 27 
passes completed out of 41 attempts, 275 yards and two touchdowns. The running game, Brian Robinson had averaged 4.6 yards a carry. And the commanders, too, the other thing, too, was Deron Payne had a big game. He had two he had two sacks. Two sacks. Jonathan Allen had a sack. Danny Johnson had a sack. So that defense, you know, they were going to give Daniel Jones a hard time, and that's a really talented young defense that they built through the draft. And as for the Giants, too, I mean, Jones did well, 25-31 for 200 yards and a touchdown. But the problem was, you know, and it was a big, big one on, on third and two in overtime, they had uh, running back, I believe it was Saquon Barkley to the right, and then another player on his left. And there was miscommunication after he snapped it to hand it off, and they bumped into each other, and Daniel Jones ends up getting tackled after he tried to run it on third and two, and they don't make it. And it, it's tough because this is a game that you want to win. This is a division game. This is playoff, a chance to make the playoffs on the line. And then at the end, the game goes into overtime. You know, like I had said, with that uh, third and two call, there needed to be uh, better communication with that. And, and, you know, that's on the quarterback. Daniel Jones needs to make sure that he communicates better. And the Giants have a chance to potentially win on a 60-yard field goal by Grant Gano, but it's short and they end up tying. So now the Giants are 7-1-1 and the Commanders are 7-5-1, and one, and the Giants have a tall task ahead of them. They play the Philadelphia Eagles next week. And the Philadelphia Eagles are 11-1. and one. Excuse me, they're the best team in the league. So for the Giants, they really have their work cut out for them. And they're actually at home, but still, it's no easy task. Jalen Hurts has been playing well. A.J. Brown had a big game today. So it's going to take a whole team effort to win, and they need to play a perfect game against the Eagles because this division is going to be tough. They have the Eagles next week, and then they're at Washington the following week. So the Giants really need to win this game. So it, it, it stings, but it's not the end of the world for them. But they do they do need to get on a winning streak right now. So it's a tough, tough day for both Giants and Jets fans, both close games that didn't go the way in which you wanted. Now we talk about the – and now we talk about the hot throw, uh, about both the Mets and the Yankees. Unfortunately for the Mets, they had their hearts ripped out of them when Jacob DeGrom decided to sign a five-year, $185 million contract with the Texas Rangers with a six-year option that could bring that total to $222 million. So here's the thing. DeGrom, when he's healthy, he's one of the best pitchers in the league. Don't get me wrong. Really great stuff. But he's getting up there in age. You know, he's 34 years old, and he hasn't been able to stay healthy. He threw 64 and third innings in 2022. So that just goes to show you, and and in the past couple years, too, he's had injuries. And there was one time, too, where they had an MRI done, and they couldn't find out what was wrong with him. So this guy is, even though he's throwing throwing harder the past couple years, his body's going to break down eventually. You know, his last five seasons, yes, his ERA, 2.05, ranks first in MLB. His K per nine is 12.2, which ranks second. His whip is 
second at 0 0.87, strikeout rate is 6.9, which is also second as well. So this stinks for the for the Mets, but you know what? The Mets made the Mets didn't get a chance to make a final offer allegedly. So I think it was best for the Mets to let him go because if he really wanted to be with the Mets, the Mets would have found a way to keep him. And if he wanted to win, which he doesn't seem serious about, he seems like he's chasing the bag, so to speak, then he would have then he wouldn't have gone to Texas because Texas doesn't have a chance at winning a World Series. They they're just not. They're not gonna be they're not gonna beat the Houston Astros. They're way too talented. And I don't think they're as good as the Seattle Mariners. So I think they come third in this division. So with the Mets, they have to turn the page, and I think they have to go and and look at bringing not Justin Verlander because I think he's older, and I think he'll probably end up with the Dodgers. But I think they need to look at Carlos Rodon. You want a lefty in that rotation, and he has yes, he has a, a checkered history path, checkered health past, but the guy has dominant stuff, and yes, he's going to command a lot of money, but. Steve Steve Cohen has got the big bucks. And listen, Carlos Rodon went 14-8 last year. He had a 2.8 ERA, 237 strikeouts, and 57 earned runs. And he, he started 31 games. So here's the thing with that. You know, he's, he's a guy that has dominant stuff. And he's also younger, too. He's younger than DeGrom. He's 29 years old. So I think it makes sense for the Giants to go – I mean, not the Giants – for the Mets to go and get Carlos Rodon. And I think, too, you also have to look at Jamison Tyone, too, because he had a really good year last year as well. And the fact of the matter is, right now, the Mets only have Carlos Carrasco and Max Scherzer. Chris Bassett's a free agent. Taiwan Walker's a free agent. So they need to add depth into that rotation for them to continue to contend and, and be you know, World Series contenders because it all starts with pitching, as everybody knows. But sure, I think the other thing too with the Mets is they, yes, they got Edwin Diaz, but I think that they really need to bring back Brandon Nimmo. That's a really big bat that they missed that they need at the top of their lineup and a really solid defender in the outfield. So we'll see, we'll see where they go with that. But I think that the Mets really need to focus on their starting rotation. I think their bullpen, you know, you can always improve on their bullpen, you know, look for some guys that, that can eat some innings, you know. I think if I were the Mets, correction, Brandon Nimmo, correction, Brandon Nimmo was the right fielder, not center fielder. I apologize for that. But the other thing, too, is they should look at getting a guy such as, like, if I'm the Mets, I'm looking to try to bring in a guy like, yes, he's 36, but Jake McGee has really solid stuff. He's very deceptive from the left side as far as with his windup and his, uh, rather, sorry, his delivery. But even a guy like David Robinson, too. David Robinson had a really good year last year with the uh, Cubs and Phillies. David Robinson's a guy that can pitch in New York and knows what it takes to win because he won a World Series back with the Yankees in 2009. So they need to add to their bullpen. And, yeah, last year he was 4-3, but he had a 2.4 ERA. 20 saves and 63 and two-thirds of an innings and had 81 strikeouts. So that's another guy that the Giants, uh, that the Mets can look to bring in. Even a guy, even a guy like a Luke Jackson who pitched for Atlanta or 
I mean, I know they haven't looked to get him because they've been focused on Jacob DeGrom, but maybe, maybe, maybe if the price is right, maybe they want to bring back Trevor May. I mean, you know, there's there's a bunch load of different opportunities. Or you could look at a guy like Michael Givens. He he pitched for the Cubs and he has a really good delivery and he has some good stuff. So I would look at him if I'm the Mets. So, but yeah, your bullpen, you got to work on. I would look at two starters at least to try to see if you could get a Carlos Rodon and Jameson Tyone. If, if Steve Cohen is comfortable with the amount of years and, and the annual average salary and bring back Brandon Nimmo. Those, those are the big things for the, for the Mets. And as far as the Yankees, you know, the thing is with Aaron Judge, I mean, as long as, as it continues to go on and on and on, and it's coming down between the Giants and the Yankees, I'm a bit concerned if he's going to go back to the Yankees because now there are reports saying that he wants nine years, you know, which is going to up the, the value. You know, I know the Yankees offered him an eight-year, 300, and it was an eight-year, $300 million contract. And if he doesn't take it, I think then, I think he, as as much as it sounds crazy, I know that he's a really solid player and face of a franchise. If he wants nine years, I wouldn't give it to him just because he can't stay healthy. This was his first year that he, in a while that he's been able to play just about the whole season. Every other year he's had his issues. The one year he had his oblique issue. It's it's tough to sustain that type of production playing over 150 games when you're that tall with how tall Aaron judges and in order to stay healthy. So it'll remain to be seen what they do with that, but I think that the Yankees should continue to look in on some guys too because starting rotation you always want to improve on. And I would, Carlos Rodon's a really good guy. I know that the Mets are looking at him too, but this guy has quality stuff and could be paired up with Garrett Cole and be the number two guy behind him. And, you know, then you have Cole, if you had Rodon and Nestor Cortez, that's a really good starting rotation. And you want to be able to fill in a void that Jameson Tyone had. Um, I think that the Yankees should look into Andrew Benintendi if they could bring him back. But I also think, too, depending on he wants a short-term deal, but I would even try to see maybe Cody Bellinger, maybe, but I I would lean more towards Ben Benintendi because he has more contact and less strikeouts. Bellinger is more of a hit and miss, and you don't want too many swing and misses in that lineup. So I think it's good to check in on, on Bellinger, but I would I would try to bring back Ben Benintendi if you can. I know he is, uh, I believe he's a Scott Boris agent, but you have to go and get him. Uh, it depends on what happens with DJ LeMahieu this offseason, whether if he can be 100% healthy from that toe. And the Yankees need to decide, you know, are they going to get him surgery or what? Because Brian Cashman says, oh, well, we'll know in December when he needs surgery or not. You should have found that out the, the day after the season was over. And look, because if he's healthy and he can bring back that production that he's been with the Silver Slugger Award and 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 high average, then – I would look to try to trade Glaber Torres for a, uh, a reliever because that Yankee bullpen was really hurt hurt last year towards the end of the stretch. You know, Michael King is out for the year. Chad Green needed Tommy John surgery. 
Aroldis Chapman was uh, reliable. Zach Britton couldn't stay healthy. So, you know, Chapman and Britton are going to be gone. You're going to have Holmes back next year. You just lost Miguel Castro to free agency to the Arizona Diamondbacks. So they need to be able to piece that bullpen and, and find guys, and I think they do it via I mean, if the Yankees can, depending on what they're asking, I would try to see if David Bednar is available from the Pittsburgh Pirates. They've made a trade before. They were able to get Clay Holmes, as we all know, and he was lights out this year before he had that injury. But I think that's something that you have to look into. I also think, too, they should look at, guys, if I'm the Yankees, I try to look at getting maybe like a Taylor Rogers who's 32 and see if you're able to get him. But um, we'll see how that works out. And I think you could probably get, I think you could probably get him for a decent price. I mean, yeah, he went four and eight last year, but he had a 4.76 year. Right. So, I think with the Yankees, especially Matt Blake, and I'm sure they'll bring him back. I think if he works with Matt Blake, you get him back to being dominant. And then you have a guy that could set up a Clay Holmes. And you have you have Michael King coming back next year. Wandy Peralta is there. So I think that's important to, to get another lefty in that bullpen and see what else you could see what else you could do, you know, because the bullpen you want to shorten games up and you want to be able to get those guys out in, in really tough situations and tough spots. But the bullpen is something that I need to work on. Um, I know they've stated that they have checked in with Trey Turner and Xander Bogarts. However, I think that they'll stick with their guys, Volpe and Peraza. But I really think that they'll go look and try to add two big free agents if Aaron Judge doesn't come back, and that hinges with a lot of guys. So – you want him to come back, but if he's going to go leave to San Francisco, they're not going to they're not going to win a World Series. They're not even close to that. Maybe, maybe if they stay healthy and can add pieces with Judge, then maybe they could potentially make the playoffs. But I don't see that happening in the division where you have the Giants and you also have the Padres. So it, it, it's going to be tough for them. But back to the Yankees. You know, I would love to even maybe bring Michael Fulmer in for a for a leader role, you know, and you want to add depth too. So see what happens. See if you could try to offload Aaron Hicks. I think that'll be than Josh Donaldson. Josh Donaldson going to be making twenty one million this year, so that's going to be really hard to move, especially since he really declined offensively. I mean, he played he played he played good defense, and at times he didn't. But you got to see what's what's going on with those younger guys and. Isaiah kind of left, but yeah, he has a year and six million left, but see what you can do because that's pricey coming off the bench. That's a lot of money. So if you could try to trade him and get something out of it, great. But you have to give these younger guys an opportunity and see about other guys that you could trade to try to get some sort of assets in return that come back and help you. Now let's move on to our winners and losers of the week. My winners of the week go to the Rutgers men's basketball team who beat 10th ranked Indiana yesterday by a score of 63 to 48. They're now six and two. And, um, you know, Caleb McConnell had a injury and now he's back. 
scored 16 points. Derek Simpson scored 14 points off the bench. Andre Hyatt forward had 11 points. Malat Mag had seven points. So, and Cliff Amoria, he only had six points, but he had nine rebounds. So, this team, good job. Hopefully, they continue. Steve Peichel has really turned this program around, and they're looking to try to make it to the NCAA tournament the third time with Scott, with Steve Peichel as their coach. So hats off to the Rutgers men's basketball program. I would say my loser of the week has to be the USC Trojans. They All they had to do was beat, and I know it's not easier, easy said than done, but they had to beat the 11th ranked Utah on Friday night in the Pac-12 championship game. However, quarterback Caleb Williams got hurt and they got outplayed big time. And (laughs) I think a lot of it had to do with they got burnt out playing Notre Dame last weekend. And I think they were just really tired and they didn't have an answer for quarterback Cam Rising. Cam Rising was 22 of 34 through for 310 yards and three touchdowns. They couldn't stop the run game with Jaquindion Jackson, 13 carries, 105 yards, two touchdowns. Micah Bernard, another running back, had 11 carries for 80 yards and a touchdown. You know, Caleb Williams, yeah, he had a good game, but he threw a pick. But the defense just couldn't stop him. USC's up 14 to 3, then they get outscored 14 to 3 in the second half, and then they end up, Utah ends up pouring it on in the fourth quarter. They scored 23 points, and USC's only able to respond with seven points. So my loser of the week's USC Trojans. They're the eight, they were the eighth team in the country, and they had, they had the playoff, college football playoff within grass, but they lose 47 to 24. That's my losers for the week. Um, really exciting week of sports. It will only continue. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.